Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salber, and it's my uh, monthly podcast for the American Journal of Managed Care. And um, boy, do I have a treat for you today. Uh, We're going to talk with Sarah Varney who some of you may know from her work. She's a senior national correspondent at my absolute favorite health policy news site, the Kaiser Family Foundation's Kaiser Health News. And uh, she also is a uh, on-camera reporter for a lot of my favorite stations, PBS NewsHour, NPR, and um, she does work for the New York Times. And she does a lot of different policy stories, mainly around implementation of federal law and how it rolls out in states and, and in local jurisdictions. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today, because I heard Sarah present on a policy panel at this year's Health 2.0 conference. And I was absolutely struck when she talked about how her stories are shaped all the time by the time that she spends in the field talking to people who are affected by the policy decisions that are made by folks in D.C. or state capitals or somewhere usually far away from these people's lives. So, um, Sarah, I thought we'd start out by having you give us an example of – of this type of work. I know that you recently went to Houston to talk to people who were um, recovering from the hurricane damage. Um, What kind of issues did you discuss? Uh, What kind of procedures did you have in place to have these conversations? Who did you talk to and and what did you learn? The focus of the story for NPR is, is about how people with HIV fared after the storm. So one of the things that we knew that happened with Katrina was that many of the people who had HIV were not able to, of course, get their medications because their homes had been destroyed or they had to evacuate or their medications had gotten wet while they evacuated. Many of them ended up actually in places like Houston or they ended up in states far away. And we had thousands and thousands of people with HIV who were unable to get their medications. So HIV medication is primarily paid for through um, a program called ADAP. And uh, it's funded primarily by the federal government and states administer this. So and AIDS medications, HIV medications are very, very expensive. So you have to go through this quite bureaucratic process to get your medications. And in most places, um, you can only get a 30-day supply. So there were, there were a number of groups that came together after Katrina to say, okay, we have to streamline this. And we know there's going to be another hurricane at some other point. We'll have more displaced people. Um, what are we going to do to ensure that there's no disruption in treatment for people who have HIV? So, um, there were changes made uh, at the federal level and at the state level that basically said, okay, so if there's another emergency like this, we're going to allow pharmacies and clinics to just dispense this information or sorry, to dispense this medication, very expensive medication, three, $4,000. And we're going to worry about who's going to pay for it later. So this, when the hurricane was approaching Houston, the word went out from Austin to uh, clinics around the state of Texas that Again, if you have people coming in, if they need medications, just do it and we'll figure it out later. So I was really curious to know, okay, how did this work? Did it really, did it really play out? So I went down to Houston and I met with, there's two primary clinics down there that uh, help people with HIV. Um, um, the main one is a, a big public clinic and uh, they, um, 
they were shut down by the hurricane. They were shut down for something like six, six days or so. Um, and what I found was, you know, I found some people who were very um, ingenious in how they were able to get to the clinic once it opened. They were able to get their medications filled. That first day that the clinic was reopened, you know, there was a, a line out the door of people trying to get their medications refilled. But for many people, this is just not, has not been their top priority. So I met one woman in particular who, um, when I met her and had been a month after the storm, she hadn't taken her medication for an entire month. And she's somebody for whom her T-cell count was quite high even before the storm because she had just recently gotten laid off and she was under a lot of stress. So I met her at this clinic and had this just very uh, heartbreaking conversation with her. She showed me video of how she was just, how she escaped her house with her three children and her mother, elderly mother, walking through the, 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 the floodwaters as they were literally at her chest. She's quite a, a small woman. Um, and I asked her, you know, of all of the things, your home has been destroyed, your car has been destroyed, all of the school clothing that you just bought for your kid with your last um, unemployment check is gone. Uh, where does getting a hold of your HIV medication kind of rank in terms of your priorities? And she just said, I have been just trying to go day to day. And this is really the first time I've been able to get in here to get my medication. So you saw in, and then there was another couple, a, a gay couple, two women who had a, a three and a half month old baby. They left before the storm. They went to Georgia uh, to stay with a friend. They were there. They were, she was running out of, the mother was running out of medications. They started splitting the pills, which is of course what you don't want to be doing. Um, and they went to the local pharmacy and said, they said, no, we can't fill this. You know, you, you're not a resident of Georgia, so you can't get the Georgia ADAP program. So they spent, you know, three and a half, four days making phone calls back to Austin to the, to the manufacturer of the AIDS medication. Um, and, and it was only once they finally reached the manufacturer that they were able to, to get a hold of someone who could help them. So even though there had been this policy um, change, which did, in fact, help a lot of people in Houston, to be sure, there were many, many cases of people who just, you know, a storm happens and life spins out in 15 million different directions. And of course, the policy can't anticipate all of that. Um, but here would have been a good example of if you are a surrounding state, if you're in Georgia, Louisiana, and you get one of these hurricane refugees essentially coming into your state who has HIV and needs these medications, just fill the prescription. Um, there was another man, I'll just tell you, uh, who I met who um, was able to get back on his HIV medication. And I think to your question about why is it important to be out into the field and, and hear these stories, this is all I do. I, the only reporting I do is going out into the country and really trying to get a sense of people's lives. You know, he had not been back to his childhood home that he lived in um, since it had been destroyed. And it was amazing going there and standing in front of it with him. Here's somebody who has so many challenges in his life. He's, you know, uh, quite, quite poor. He's had HIV for a number of years and he was really scared to go back. Um, and I said, you know, it's okay. I'll be there with you. Let's just go back. Let's look at it. And, you know, afterwards, he just said, this just felt like therapy to me, you know, felt this was a, an amazing experience for him to get to go back and to then be able to tell his story about the loss of his home and how his HIV um, and managing his HIV on top of everything else that he was dealing with um, was in some ways sort of overwhelming. This really raises uh, so many very interesting issues for me. And first, I have to put my physician hat on because I never have it off for very long. And as I'm listening to you talk, um, tell the stories of these people, and from the perspective of what they were facing, I can clearly understand why getting their HIV medicines would not, not necessarily be at the top of the list. Um, but as a physician, there's this part of me that's saying, 
you haven't taken these life-saving medicines for, for a month. And this is, you know, we talked earlier before we went live about uh, conversations that where people kind of talk past each other. And I think the issue of medication adherence or non-adherence, or as us doctors used to say, compliance, because we like to point a finger. Um, from the doctor perspective, this should have been number one on your list. But from the patient perspective, it makes total sense that getting the medications filled wasn't number one on your list. So it seems to me that these conversations that you're having, the people who could benefit from it go beyond um, policymakers and politicians, but also need to go to health professionals and other people who are involved in providing care for uh, patients. So that's that's one issue, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. But I quickly want to raise just another issue, which is the story about not being able to get your medications in Georgia because you belong to, you know, the Texas ADAP as opposed to the Georgia ADAP. In this country, you always have kind of this conflict between what should be done at the federal level and what should be under state control. And, and yet this is an example of, of perhaps having a federal policy, right? A policy so that people could get their medications without problem if they're in another state, um, might be a good thing to, to think about doing. Certainly. Absolutely. And I, 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 I think that there's a lot of lessons learned from this hurricane as well as now Puerto Rico. We're going to have a huge problem in Puerto Rico. There are, uh, I think, something like 17,000 people in Puerto Rico that have HIV. Um, and you can be sure that uh, very few of them have been able to take their HIV medications these last six weeks. Um, so it goes beyond just the United States, but into the, some of the territories as well. I will say that in terms of the providers, you know, particularly for providers who are and you, I'm sure you know this and your doctor friends know this, providers who really serve populations that are living very difficult lives, who ha have HIV, who have, um, who are, um, uh, who might have mental illness or behavioral problems, who are homeless. The clinic that I went to in Houston, um, a big focus for them are, is the homeless HIV population. So they are, you know, very aware of just the chaos uh, that is a, it is a daily occurrence for these people in their lives. Um, and they do send out social workers. I did go out with a social worker, uh, you know, in the pouring rain when I was there, it was actually pouring rain still and, um, uh, you know, under the bridges and some other places where they're trying to find some of their, their, their homeless HIV clients who they just haven't seen around since the storm. So there's been an effort to try and get onto the ground and go out and find some folks, but some of them, you know, may have left town. Some of them may be staying with friends. Some of them may be in shelters. Um, it's very difficult to, when something like this happens, to kind of track everybody down. But that was sort of my first question was, in a way, you know, isn't there sort of just a list of everybody that we need to contact and then let's just go find them, right? Because, um, of course, that's what you want for, all these, for, for everybody. But um, it's just not been, it's been very difficult to get everybody back into the fold because their lives have been so disrupted. And, um, and Sarah, since, um, you know, we're talking about, the hurricane and, and the aftermath in, in particular with uh, Puerto Rico. Um, how, how do you think um, the, from the perception of the people that you talk to, how do you think the, the federal response or the local response, did they, how, did people on the ground feel like their government, whether it was state or local or federal, was doing everything that they could for them? Was that uh, a topic that came up? 
It was interesting. I mean, among of many, among many of the homeless people I talked to, who are a little bit more familiar with how to, they understand the system a bit. You know, they understand where the shelters are. They understand where the food banks are. If you've been homeless for a long time, uh, or even a short period of time, you sort of have to learn those things pretty quickly to survive. From, from their perspective, actually, what the storm did in Houston was it actually brought a lot more resources. So one of the things you heard from homeless people themselves, but also their caseworkers, was that you know, it used to take a really long time to try and find housing for somebody who was homeless. The storm basically brought uh, you know, just a lot more resources. You know, There were more shelters set up. There were more ha- permanent housing solutions even for people, uh, more food, more places to shower. So in some ways, the storm brought to the homeless population there more resources than they had before. Um, so I think they would say that the government response was quite good. Um, there was a, a homeless man with HIV that I spoke to who was able to go to the one of the, the big uh, emergency shelters that would set up, you know, the Walgreens or the CVS. The pharmacy was there already with a booth. He was able to go there and get HIV medications that had been already kind of pre-approved by the Texas ADAP. So that system worked really well for him. I think for the people who are living in Northeast Houston, as a, a, a poor part of town, people who are working, you know, multiple jobs, who depend on their cars for transport, because Houston is just a city that is not built with um, public, tra- you know, good public transportation. Um, I think for those people, they dif- they definitely felt abandoned for quite some time. Um, you know, this one woman was showing me this video, as I mentioned, of her walking and, you know, they're literally just walking, wading through this water. Things are touching her leg. You know, she's um, trying, she got one of her daughters on her back um, and they're just shouting from neighbor to neighbor as they're walking, you know, how do we get out? You know, how do we get out of this neighborhood? Where does the water start to recede? And it, it was insane. They were all on cell phones. The cell phones are still working at this point. Um, so, you know, as she's showing me this video, there are, uh, you know, comments being posted on the video as, as, she's, as she's shooting it. Um, she's in touch with relatives of hers who are trying to rendezvous with her with a car. So there was a lot of just, um, you know, neighbors and leaning on neighbors. And I think a sense of, you know, what is the, you know, where is the government? Where are the helicopters? Where, where, there's nobody coming for me. Um, so I think it really depended on where you were in the city and how well you knew how to navigate through the system, whether or not you had kind of been in that system to begin with. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, I, w- I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the time you spent with people in their homes and the whole issue of what's going on in the country now where we're pretty polarized. I mean, pretty polarized. That's an understatement. We're very polarized. And a lot of the conversations that are taking taking place between the sides, and I hate to say it, but there definitely are sides, um, we seem to be talking past each other and not talking to each other. Um, what did you learn by spending time with people in their homes about how, um, how we can be better at having conversations where we actually listen to each other and communicate with each other? This is my favorite part of this job, and this is why I do what I do, and this is why, although doing the work in Washington and state capital is incredibly important, what I like to do is to go into people's homes, into their neighborhoods, and really try and get a sense of their lives and really try and be true and tell their story. Um, I was thinking 
about this couple that we met in January. We were on a news hour shoot in Ohio, and we were doing a story about how um, the potential repeal of the Affordable Care Act was going to impact the Medicaid expansions in the various states and, and a number of other things and hospital hospital finances. And um, I met this couple at a clinic. They were uh, probably in their late 50s or so white. They had voted for Donald Trump. They, um, she had been a nurse at one point and had had, had some in, an injury or a surgery and had gotten prescribed opioids and had become addicted to them. And she was in recovery at this point. Her husband had been laid off from a job and I, I want to say Mansfield, Ohio, at a manufacturing facility. So here they were. They were showing up at a, a federally qualified health center, public, uh, not a public clinic, but an FQHC. They needed help, and they were registering for Medicaid. And Ohio, of course, did the Medicaid expansion. And we sat down and we started chatting. And what I find always so fascinating about people given how coarse our public discourse is, how coarsened our public discourse has become, that they are very much aware of their own contradictions. So this couple said right away, look, I get it. I get that I voted for a president who has sworn that he wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which will mean the end of the Medicaid expansion in Ohio. Um, by the way, I, I, I don't, I'm not like one of them, those people, quote, those people who have always been on Medicaid. I just need it for now just to kind of help me through this tough spot. So as a reporter, you're always, it's always tricky, right? Because you hear people say things like that and you kind of want to correct the record and say, and you know, oftentimes I do in these interviews, I don't do it in the kind of a gotcha way. I just say, Hey, look, just so you know, you know, the vast majority of people on Medicaid are children or the elderly and the vast majority of people on Medicaid work. Um, they're actually a lot like you. This is why it's called the safety net. Um, so right, I, and they're I, often only on it for a short period of time. For a short period of time, safety exactly. Net. Yeah. So I do, I mean, I know some reporters don't think they don't necessarily correct when somebody has said something that's incorrect. I actually feel like it really enriches the conversation and it makes it, it kind of honors them in a, in a way, you know, it's like, let's, I respect your opinion and I respect your intelligence and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you, you know, information that's correct so that you can really respond to that and send something else. So, but in the course of these conversations, you know, you're, you're, you're doing that. You're, you're kind of trying to fine tune their perspective. But then, you know, in this case, these, these, this couple said, you know, look, I understand that what I'm saying is somewhat hypocritical, you know, that I both need this right now and I voted for somebody who wants to take it away. And I think that, you know, when you really sit down and, you have people kind of contemplate or mull over, you know, these different ideas that they themselves are wrestling with. It's just a much richer conversation. And I, I have, I, I firmly believe that there are very few people in the world who see things black and white, you know, that they, and, and in some cases people sort of reach a opinion about something that's quite sharp and it has more to do with like their own personal shame for needing help, you know, um, or uh, I don't want to be seen as somebody who, who you know, who who is dependent upon the government, and there's some shame who couldn't take care of themselves. That, who couldn't take uh, care of themselves. And I think it's important in that moment to just be really generous and say, yeah, we all want to feel independent, and losing our independence is really, really hard. Um, and I think when you boil it down to the individual story, the individual need, then people kind of come to understand. Just if they reflect a little bit more seriously on the choices that they've made and, you know, perhaps then that helps make them a little bit more forgiving the next time they see somebody else who needs help, who maybe looks or doesn't look like them. So, so Sarah, this whole conversation makes me wonder, um, 
you know, the media has uh, played a role, I think, in in the divisiveness in this country. And in part, it's because we all know that if you go to this station, you're going to hear, you know, the, the, the right or the alt-right or the left or, you know, the ultra-left uh, point of view that um, the media itself has become uh, polarized and oftentimes um not accepting, as you just described, of having a conversation across sides. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that? And second, if you do, then what what can the media do to um, to start to break down this polarization and to open up the national conversation? Hmm. I think the term the media is sort of starts, kind of starts the problem because I think when everything sort of gets put in one bucket, then it's really difficult to diagnose what the problem is, right? So I think that certainly there are, you know, talk radio organizations on on kind of, you know, the left and the right, although the right has certainly been the place where that has, um, you know, there's far more um, conservative talk radio stations, for instance, in the United States. Um, but I think it's important to diagnose and say, okay, yes, Fox News and, um, you know, Breitbart News represent this point of view, MSNBC represents this point of view. But for the most part, you know, the mainstream organizations like National Public Radio, like the News Hour, like the New York Times, like the Washington Post, I mean, they're full of reporters that are just like me. And I think what tends to happen is we follow politics very closely. And we've seen what happens, of course, with the president now who, who tweets. And so then everything kind of gets focused on that. But I think if you actually look past just the political reporting, which is incredibly important, but if you look past the political reporting, there are stories every day in the paper and on the news hour and on NPR um, and USA Today and the Washington Post that really do actually get at all of these things that I'm talking about. And so I think I think it's important for people to read all of those stories, to not just sort of look what's on their Facebook page and what people are, are sending out. But to you know, obviously, I of course I agree. You should you should subscribe to your local newspaper. You should subscribe to a national newspaper. You should watch the news hour. You should listen to NPR. You know, these stories are not being informed by a political viewpoint. You know, um, they are are they are our attempt to go out and say, here's what's happening in your world. There's been a hurricane. How are people with HIV faring? How on earth is that political? You know, I mean, certainly in the in the wake of a big election like this, where there's a president who's vowing to upend, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act, which would have widespread implications for many, many people. It's important to go out into the country and say, how are these people going to be affected? What's the plan? If this does get repealed, what's the plan to help them um, or what options are going to be available to them then? You know, in my view, those are not, I'm not driven at all quite frankly, by politics. And if anything, I love to strip all of that out, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I just, I think that there is a lot of really good reporting that is there, that if you just kind of look beyond sort of the, you know, the political reporting, it, it's there. Um, there was a great story yesterday on the front page of the New York Times by Patty Cohen about uh, how the, you know, certain smaller towns have really depended upon healthcare to fuel their economic growth. So what happens if you pull back on economic on, on healthcare spending? You know, that's not a political just that's not a political story. It's the story about okay, here's oh, I did a story for instance for the New York Times about the repeal of NAFTA, the potential repeal of NAFTA. Um, I was down in Tijuana. I did the story for the New York Times, and I basically looked at how all these you know medical device companies have moved their and this has been going on for a number of years moved their production to Tijuana, um, and 
so what's going to happen to medical the sort of the pipeline supply chain if in fact NAFTA goes through? Now is that am I coming at it from NAFTA should say or shouldn't say? No, I'm going down there and I'm talking to these people who have you know built these big plants and I'm talking to people back here who are running hospitals saying here's what's going to happen to our costs and hopefully then giving people a, a chance to weigh out um, whether or not this would be a good idea. So I think it's well, so I, not I, blame the media. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, so maybe I should have made it broader. When I said media, I was counting in a way all the places that people are getting. I probably should have said media and social media, all the places that people yeah, are getting sure. their news. I know lots of people. I mean, college-educated people here. I live in Northern California, the heart of liberal land, um, who only get their news from either podcasts or talk radio or Facebook. I mean, they're not. Uh, I, I do subscribe to all, all all of the ones that you talked about, and I make a point of trying to go over and, and see what's on Fox, and uh, you know, uh, so I try and get a spectrum. But that's because I'm I'm a bit of a you know I'm a news buff. I, I like to do that. That isn't what most people are 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 doing. And um, and as a matter of fact, I always go every morning over to over to Twitter because I like to see. What's breaking, you can usually see it there first, and you can also see the incredible polarization. So even with stories like the one that you described, which I thought was brilliant about the small town, um, I think it was in Arkansas, uh, where health care really is providing all the jobs there, or the story about NAFTA, I think one of the problems is that people filter their stories through their political viewpoints. So even though even though it may have been written without a political intent, it gets read with a political filter. And I, I don't know, maybe you have some thoughts about how we could break that down. And maybe that's what we should, we should close with is, um, is there, is there some way in which we can start to use all these ways that people are getting their information to bring us together instead of drive us apart? Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of this. We were in Grundy, Virginia last year on a shoot for the News Hour. And uh, so this is the northwestern corner of Virginia. It's cool country. It's in Appalachia. It's where Kentucky is 10 miles away. Tennessee is just south of there. And West Virginia, of course, is just north. So um, Kentucky had, of course, as you remember, expanded Medicaid um, and uh, as had West Virginia. And But Virginia itself did not. Um, the governor had, the Democratic governor had supported it. The Republican-controlled legislature um, would not do the Medicaid expansion. So here we are in this um, very, very poor area, um, and they're having one of these remote area medical events where they bring in. This is an organization that, for many years, has um, done these extraordinary events. You feel like you feel like you're in a refugee camp in Somalia, but you're in the United States. They'll come in. They'll put up huge tents. Or in this case, they took over a school. And for three days, people will come and get uh, medical services, dental services, vision services. And people will start lining up the night before and getting numbers. And they literally camp out all night long um, and just in order to get in line, be in line to get some services the next day. So one of the gentlemen that we met on this shoot was a young man who was 18 or 19 years old. And he was living with his aunt in um, her trailer um, in, you know, sort of rural, a rural part of this area. And we ended up going with him back to her house and talking with her. And I was saying how, you know, there's a lot of people that I've met here who said that they're going to move. They're just they're thinking about moving just across the border to Kentucky so that they can 
get onto Medicaid. And a lot of these people used to work in the coal mines. Some of them had injuries. Um, some of them are just really sick. They have smoked their whole lives or they have really poor dental hygiene. So they have really terrible, um, uh, you know, problems, pain and whatnot from, from all of that. Anyhow, a whole host of problems, as you can possibly imagine, diabetes, obesity, um, hypertension, all of that. And, uh, and I said, so I said, you know, what, so who do you, who do you blame? He's like, yeah, well, I'd like to, you know, I, I would be good for me. I'd like to get on, I'd like to be on Medicaid. I'd like to have insurance or access to a doctor. And I said, well, who do you blame for that? The fact that you don't have the Medicaid expansion here in Virginia. And he just looked and said, he's a really nice guy. We've been hanging out kind of the last couple of days. He said, well, I blame Obama. <laughs> and I just said, how, how do you, how do you make, like, how do you make that? Well, I just, I blame him. And I explained, I said, well, the reason, you know, Medicaid expansion is voluntary. Here's sort of how it works. And it was, so you ask, you know, how can we kind of get beyond our polarization of, I mean, of our media sources? I'm, I am almost in a sense more concerned about that, right? About a person who is really not almost getting any information about how their world works and why it's important to them and decide one way or the other but to not to be to be so um, confused or incurious about how this thing that is incredibly important to him his healthcare you know um, how it, how it even works for the basic functioning of it. Um, so Sarah, I find, do you think he I, wasn't I important? I'm sorry. Do you think he wasn't getting information, or do you think he was getting information, but he was getting information from? you know, let's say a talk show host who, you know, is, you know, every day talking about how Obama is the worst thing, Obamacare is the worst thing that ever happened to the, to the country. Um, you know, I, I, I because the, the airwaves are bombarding people with that information. And even if he's not listening to the talk radio, his friends are probably listening to the talk radio. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to know. I don't, I don't know. I can't say I can't say for sure. What I, the sense that I got was, and I think this is true for particularly a lot of younger people that I've talked to. Um, and I think we think about sort of, you know, urban young people who are connected, you know, and, and yes, they're on, he may even be on Facebook. I don't know, but there are a lot of people who are just not really engaged in the policy choices that are being made, you know, either in their state capitals or in Washington and how it affects them. It's just not a part of their life. And it may be simply because, you know, you're working two or three jobs or you're 25 and you have, you know, uh, you have two kids and you don't even see your partner because, you know, you work at night as a, as a janitor and he works during the day as a bus driver. I, I mean, you know, I think that the people's lives have, I mean, they've always, people have always worked very hard and have always, you know, this is not saying things are worse now than they were a hundred years ago or 50 years ago per se. People have always struggled. But I do think that there's a way in which for a lot of people, they just are going day to day and they're not really even focused on why don't I have health care? How do I get health care? So, you know, I think that, you know, in those instances, what I find interesting when you go into these small towns, whether it's Ohio or Texas, like Brownsville, Texas, for instance, I've spent some time there um, or not that Brownsville is a small town. Brownsville is actually quite a big city. But, you know, you go into some of these smaller towns or smaller communities um, I do a lot of reporting on racial and ethnic health disparities. And, you know, there are these small little newspapers that exist in these, in, in these places that do actually, you know, people look at them. Um, and so I've often thought, how do I get stories in those papers? You know, something that's going to be at the local diner or at the local um, gas station that people could pick up and there would be something in there that would help inform them about the bigger picture um, of, their, of their life. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent idea because although I live in a in a urban area, I'm in just north of San Francisco. Our sort of local uh, newspaper, I have the app on my phone, and when I go over and look at, at the stories that are being covered, they'll usually be one or two or, or about some kind of you know infrastructure problem. The roads, you know, are falling apart in Larkspur where I live, and then it'll go into sports, and it never goes into the major. Uh, national issues. So I think the idea of getting um, things into those smaller papers and also and also getting um, that information into some of the social media, some of the talk shows, just to start having you know more uh, more ways of letting people hear alternative points of view without us um, kind of finger pointing or 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 the equivalent of yelling at each other on Twitter mm-hmm. would be yeah. uh, would be excellent. And maybe the place we have to go is into the schools and, and to start getting kids engaged in understanding the importance of of seeing you know many aspects of or, or seeing an issue from many different sides, so that there can be you know more openness um, to other people's points of view. Uh, it's become, it seems like it's become acceptable um, to just close off and, and, and defend your narrow point of view much more than I recall in the past. And maybe that's not, maybe that's not true, but that's what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, it's important for people to stay focused on, you know, I know my sort of personal philosophy, but also my, my approach as a reporter has always been identifying what the problem is and then coming up with some sort of solution. So I'm very, I would say I am a very pragmatic person. I'm not an ideological person. Um, and so I take that into my reporting. So I'm far less interested and I would be a terrible political reporter because I really just can't, I can't. I can't play that game and I, I just can't understand it. I can't understand why you're worried about who's up and who's down and who looks good and who's, you know, fighting with who I just, I, I don't have any patience for that. Um, so I would be terrible at that, but I will say that, you know, I'm oftentimes focused on, okay, so you have all these people who are uninsured who don't have access to healthcare or healthcare costs are too high, or, you know, like I did a story about, um, how African-American, um, older people don't use hospice. Um, when that would really benefit them. And they don't use it for good reason, right? There's a lot of um, uh, understandable angst about um, the racial injustice that has been uh, widespread in the healthcare system for many, 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 many years and continues to this day. But so given that, though, what's the solution? How do you reach out to African-Americans and help them see that there's a kinder way for them and their loved ones to pass? so I would say that sort of informs everything that I do. And I, I'm not, it's not my job to come up with these solutions, but I would certainly say that I'm more focused on that and I have more interest. I'm personally more curious about that and more interested in that. And I think if we can shift away from the constant, you know, sort of politicization, politicization of just everything um, and more toward a, okay, let's, it's, this is tough. This is difficult work to say, here's what the problem is. And then here's what the solution is. And sometimes those solutions you know, we do have to debate out ideology and we do have to debate out the reach of government and we do have to debate out the intrusion into our personal decisions and our personal responsibility. Um, I get all of that, but I think we have not, we're not been, we're not been doing that. You know, we've not been really engaging seriously as citizens and in, in, in coming up with solutions to the things that really truly do affect us every day. You know, I have a 10 year old son and I think 
I, I reported all on the sort of rise of the un, un, uninsured, of course, um, as it reached into the middle class. Then we had this, you know, imperfect legislative solution. Now we've talked about repealing it. And the whole time I, my, as a mother, I'm thinking, I have a 10 year old son and what I do not want him to do is do what I had to do in my twenties where I, I, you know, was uninsured for a time after I got laid off and couldn't afford the Cobra, you know, like I, I just want something for him, <laughs> you know? Um, so if, if we could all focus on, I think on that, then there's less, it doesn't matter like who, whose idea it was or, or what principle does it violate. We're just now trying to come up with a solution. I want to thank you. I think that's a great place for us to close is um, it's one thing to talk about the problems, but if we could focus on the solutions, maybe that is uh, a mechanism by which we can have more fruitful, uh, meaningful conversations with each other. So, Sarah, I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. And also, I want to thank you for all the work that you do um, in helping to bring the voice of people out there living their lives into the policy discussions. Um, so thank you. thank you very much. Uh, Sarah Varney, thank you for having me. Senior National Correspondent with uh, Kaiser Health News.